This podcast contains potentially adult language, adult themes, definitely drinking, and possibly sexual context. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, so welcome to Drinking with Authors. I'm your host, Erica Wiss. With me, as always, is Valerie Willett. And today, our epic guest is Valerie... David Bren. David Bren! Okay, so let's talk a little bit about what we're drinking first, because we always do that. Um, so, me and Val decided to drink a warm apple cider with Honey Jack in it, because yes. we're in Florida, and that just seems ridiculous. So that's what we decided to do. David, what are you drinking with us today? Well... I'm starting out with home-brewed iced tea. It's rather warm here, though I, Though in California we don't have your humidity. But I am going to have a sip, even though it's before noon, of a couple of items. One is Johnny Walker Swing. Ooh, uh, ooh yes, that, yes. It was 25 years old when I bought it 20 years ago. Oh, my goodness. Wow. So it's on its way towards being 50. Oh, wow. Um, and this is simply the civilized drink. It's port. Oh, wow. So, wow. You know, port and sherry are so civilized. But, you know, it's important that, uh, that viewers remember that until the invention of distillation, um, fortified wines like sherry and port were about as strong as you could get. Uh, and there were various ways to fortify them. One was to leave them out in the cold of winter. Water ice would form on the surface. You'd scoop out the water ice and throw it away. And what was left was alcohol-fortified wine. Not as strong as distilled, but um, still people, um, it became a tradition. So Schlansche, um, partly because... Um, our daughter is in Scotland working on her PhD. Awesome. Congratulations. So okay. um, grab a piece of paper to take notes. And um, we were already talking about apocalypses. And Valerie and Erica are going to have links underneath this. Yes. To various places. So. What actually, so you obviously have been a prolific writer for a long time. What got you started in writing? Um, well, let's see. Uh, I always knew I'd be a writer. I mean, I was born to be. Um, my father, his father, and rumor had it, his father before him were all writers. My mother was highly literate. Um, no, I, I, I felt the writing bug from the beginning, and I knew that I would write. Um, but let me back off and say that um, science fiction was very poorly named. It sounds very, very nerdy, and uh, only about 10% of, uh, of science fiction authors are scientists, as I am. Um, though some of the English majors who became science fiction authors actually do the hard stuff, the hard science, scientific science fiction so well. Um, Kim Stanley Robinson, Nancy Kress, um, Linda Nagata, um, Emily Devonport, um, Greg Baer. Uh, these are all people who could not parse a, a differential equation if they were tutored at it for a hundred years. <laughs> um, <laughs> When that, but, when that but they nevertheless write excellent extrapolative hard science fiction because they know the trick. Live near a university and bribe the experts that you need with pizza and beer. It's the cheapest consulting rate possible, and usually you can get away with a Tuckerization. Oh, wow. Just promise to mention them in the book, and they'll pay for the pizza and beer as, as well as correcting all of your errors in the scientific aspect. So having said that, I'm, I'm going to garrulously come around circle. <laughs> having said that, I believe that what science fiction should have been named is speculative history. 
Because the thing that almost all science fiction authors share is not so much a love of science. As a matter of fact, some of the leading science fiction today is and gives an impression of being somewhat hostile to science. No, it is an obsession with history. Um, far greater percentage of science fiction authors read and, and, and absorb and dwell in history. And this includes fantasy authors as well, even though the mother genre, fantasy, um, is morally and psychically diverged from its daughter, science fiction. And we can talk about that later. Uh, but the mother genre goes back to Gilgamesh, Achilles, you know, the Iliad, the Odyssey, uh, Lady, Lady, uh, Lady Murasaki, um, you know, and, and the, the, um, the tale of Zovjenji, uh, Scholar Wu and, and Journey to the West, all fantasies that share some common traits that we can talk about. But the mother genre and the daughter genre share an obsession with history and why science fiction Science fiction is different in the way it obsesses in history. Science fiction is about taking the horrible, most tristesse, most poignant story of them all, and that's humanity's climb out of mud and caves, three steps forward, four steps back, two to the side, horrible errors made sometimes by oppressive males enforcing feudalism and gra grabbing harems, but also horrible mistakes made by countless ancestors who had the best of intentions, who simply had a wrong image of what was going on, and sometimes only partially wrong, moving us a little bit ahead while moving to the side. This is, this is the story, this is the story us climbing out, and it may be the first time that it's happened in the galaxy. Wow. In any event, and that's a whole other topic, science fiction, unlike fantasy, extrapolates this path plausibly ahead. And that's what the prefrontal lobes are for. The prefrontal lobes, these nubs above the eyes, this is what they were talking about in the Bible when they spoke of Moses having lamps on his brow. This phrase confused biblical scholars for 2,000 years. And now we're pretty sure it's about the prefrontal lobes because these are the nubs above the eyes that help us to extrapolate, to put ourselves in the shoes of others. So it's the seat of empathy. Right. But also to extrapolate, what if I did this? What if I mentioned this at the, at the business meeting tomorrow? What if I proposed this? What might the reactions be? Um, what if I stick these two gimmicks, gugaws together? Uh, what if I try to run this yellow light? <laughs> and I assure you, ladies, you probably are among those who have empathized with and tried to understand men. You have no idea how often these prefrontal lobes combine with other parts of the brain that are less mature and imagine doing things and that how many times a day the answer is no. <laughs> no. No. No, we're not doing that. No, we're not doing that. And my wife has told me many times before she has said, I understand these thought experiments go through your head and I'm not going to try to punish you or police you for having them. You are descended from horrible guys who had harems. We're all descended from the harems of these guys. So it's males imagine that they have that coming. I'm not responsible for the things that fizz back there. So, <laughs> so, I, I, so I, I do not hold hold myself accountable for the things I imagine half the time because I get that ghosted look and you're like, what you're thinking about? I'm like, you don't want to know. <laughs> and multiply that. But she says, if you behave well, you deserve to breed. <laughs> <laughs> just, just behave well and be trainable when you don't. Oh. Uh, okay, 
authority, authority. Now, we've come around to talk about speculative history, right? Science fiction extrapolates into possible futures. Warnings, dire warnings. The greatest of all science fiction is um, the self-preventing prophecy. Prophecies that make themselves not come true because they stirred people into becoming activists to prevent it. Do you think... Um, Go ahead, please. Yeah, I was going to ask, because you say that, is there a work you think created that effect largely when you're talking about that? Absolutely. Uh, Soylent Green recruited millions of environmentalists. The the, the fact that we might avoid such a future, barely, means that without the warnings that recruited millions of people, um, um, Kate Wilhelm's Where Late the Sweet Birds Sing, um, uh, Rachel Carson's um, Silent Spring, um, so many ecological warnings, uh, the movie um, uh, Silent Running. Now, how about uh, Black Like Me and um, The Invisible Man, the other one? Um, for helping people realize uh, that we are, we're on a long slog of race relations. Um, the, the granddaddy of them all is 1984. Oh, yes. Yes. Which had huge effects on the American psyche, which was already lectured to by Hollywood, almost every Hollywood film. The principal messages are, number one of all, Suspicion of authority. There has to be some suspicion, some authority figure to to um, generate conflict. Either it's uh, invading aliens, or it could be a mother-in-law. Uh, but there is suspicion of authority, tolerance, diversity, and appreciation of eccentricity. If you look at the movies you've enjoyed most, the principal character usually exhibits some eccentric trait. And it doesn't have to be the audience member's eccentric trait. The fact that they're exhibiting eccentricity helps to bond with them and helps to spread the notion that eccentricity is to be appreciated. Now, these are extremely unusual messages for a nation to preach to its young people. And the only complaint I have about the young people um, out there toppling statues and all of that is, you think you invented this? You you were taught, you suckled these values from the most relentless propaganda campaign the world has ever seen. And name for me another great nation that ever lectured relentlessly, young people criticize us. Because that's how we find our mistakes. Cito Kate. Criticism is the only known men, uh, antidote to error. It's how this experiment has done so much better than the few other Periclean experiments. Periclean Athens, uh, Florence, the Republic of Florence. The greatest discovery that has enabled us to keep moving forward and get over errors and God willing, we'll get rid of go, I'm sorry, not get rid of it. If we're an adult podcast, yes. you can swear. Yeah, this no, is awesome. You no. can say any word. Oh, oh, seriously, oh. Yeah. yeah. Rainbow babes. Seriously, oh, rainbow babes. Yeah, I'm in real danger of, of misspeaking when I say get rid of. <laughs> yeah. uh, um. No, that's how we correct errors, and God willing, we'll correct some recent errors fairly soon. Um, By the way, we're among friends here, so I did not just misspeak, right? No, not at all. All right. All right. Uh, So the point is the self-preventing prophecy, the, the granddaddy of them was 1984, because it fed into and leveraged on suspicion of authority, but in an absolutely terrifying, supreme way. And in normal times, the difference, the difference 
the difference between a decent the difference between a decent citizen of the left and a decent citizen of the right is only which direction you suspect is trying to become Big Brother. That's true. Uh, a person, a liberal, generally suspects that it's um, it's conniving aristocrats and faceless corporations. A conservative has a point when when she points and says, uh, I, "I'm worried about um, about snooty academics and faceless government bureaucrats." Now, wit is one of these directions vastly more dangerous than the others. The other now, absolutely. But the worst thing that's happened to us is that we've lost the ability to even say, I think my the authorities I'm worried about are worse, but I'm glad you're keeping an eye on mine. No, that's true. That's true. And I, that has been destroyed. No, totally. So it's it's interesting you say that because while you were saying that it caused me to think like I grew up um uh you know I was at the opening of Star Wars so that tells my age right I was 3 but I was still at the opening of Star Wars and I <laughs> and I tell people because it was at the Chinese Man Theater in California I lived there and I tell people that like everybody's like oh it's this big deal and they see the video and I'm like no you don't understand everybody thought it was the like weirdest thing in the world these droids this giant wookiee that was there like nobody kind of got what was going on completely at that moment in time you know for us kids it was like the coolest thing in the world but a lot of adults were like what is happening right there yeah, blade runner is a perfect example where um uh, everything happened right because when it was first released, um, it was too mind-boggling, and it absolutely needed Harrison Ford's voiceovers, even though we thought they were artistically awful. Ten years later, everybody understood Blade Runner. Director comes in, removes the voiceovers. We know exactly what's going on. We didn't. We didn't. We don't need Harrison Ford to tell us that Rutger Hauer. All he wanted was somebody to be with him when he died. Yeah. Don't need to be told that it's one of the greatest moments in the history of all human art. Yes. No, I totally agree. I th I think it's interesting because when you were saying what you were saying, I grew up as a nerd. I played Dungeons and Dragons before. You know, when we when we were being hunted down because we were causing murders and stuff. You know, playing Dungeons and Dragons and <laughs> all. It's true. Like for a while, they thought people who played these games all this. And then as these movies started coming out, like Thor and all of the you know Iron Man, it started becoming more and more cool to be a nerd. Yeah. Like gaming started to be more and more cool. A lot of comic books, graphic novels started to become more and more cool. They weren't the weird kids that lived in their parents' basements that collected comic books, you know? Like, And it, it's funny because that's a societal change brought about by what you're talking about. It's brought about by changes in movies in that it's cool to be these things, right? Well, uh, one of the things that, one of the, one of the things that uh, is featured in our current culture war uh, and I've gotten some people angry at me because I have, you know, I, I went to an all-black high school, and uh, I, uh, you know, I've, my father marched marched with King. I've, um, <laughs> I'm totally with the entire process here, but the oligarchy is not obsessed with the powerless. They're obsessed with power, and if you look at the fraction of time Fox heads spend attacking races or genders, it is far less than the time they spend attacking nerds. Because nerds have power, you see. Sure, the nerds are suffering personally less than the races and the genders. They're not the, they're not the great victims. They're not the ones suffering. So uh, let's make this very clear. We need to be angry and forceful because those who are suffering need need the most reforms. Yeah. But let's separate that from who the villains think are the their main enemy. They're using racism and sexism and and all of that as dog whistles to rile up their confederate masses. 
But to be honest, I don't think John, I mean, he's been proving it, John Roberts. I don't think that the, uh, the, the Mercers, the Murdochs, I don't think that they are personally obsessed with race. Why should they be? Why should they be obsessed with LG, repressing LGBTQ? These are just tools to them. What they're obsessed with is power. So it is the nerds who are the uh, the ones who have to be destroyed. And you see this in the attempts to rile up um, hatred of the deep state. Mm -hmm. And these are the people who saved us from Hitler and Stalin and bin Laden. Uh, how can, and, and finally, the chickens are coming home to roost. The United States Military Officer Corps is making clear that they're just fed up. Yeah. Um, so, but no, 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 I shouldn't have gone directly into politics. I continued to right. Like, we just, we went yeah, back. Yeah, I yeah. appreciate that. Let me uh, I ask you a question. So uh, we were talking about, you, you were telling us that you come from a family of writers. And that's that, what I was going to come back to. Right, right. Uh, okay. Were you the first in your family to take the adventure to science fiction? Oh, absolutely. Uh, look. Getting back to my, taking all this full circle, I was a kind of a nerd. I knew I'd be a writer, and I was read a lot more history than science. But having said all the things I've said, the context of 6,000 years of grinding horror, in which what was logical and true never mattered as much as the delusions of the few males at the top who, uh, who had the power to make horrible mistakes, while the peasants and the people made, uh, suffered the consequences. Across all that time, very rarely there were glimmers of moments when decisions were made not based upon delusions, but upon finding out what was actually true. And here I was, a child of Sputnik, looking around and seeing in that context what Americans still don't see when they look around, when they look at the flag, when they look at the, uh, this, this grindingly slow but inexorable arc of justice that Martin Luther King talked about. For the first time in the history of the world, a great nation was investing a huge fraction of its treasure on developing people who were dedicated to competitively, therefore you can get past delusions, finding out what actually was true. And in the context of history, I looked at that and I said, I got to be part of that. I have got to be part of that. So, you know, I had some gift at science and I got recruited into Caltech and I got my undergraduate degree, barely. And then <laughs> I went, went on, I worked for Hughes Aircraft, um, I mean, sorry, Hughes Aircraft as a, uh, an engineer. And then, <laughs> and then, then um, a Nobel Prize winner recruited me into his group at UCSD, and I and I got my PhD, and that was really good, solid work. You can go out tonight and look at a comet, and say that's that's David's doctoral dissertation. I, I figured out how comets work. Having said all that, I also plugged away at a hobby because all of the scientists I know have artistic hobbies. I was told that I saw Einstein play the violin when I was four. Oh, wow. I, I, I heard Richard Feynman play the bongo drums um, spectacularly well. And he also stole my date at a dance. <laughs> and, I, and I gotta tell you, more mileage out of just saying that one sentence than, than any amount that I was irked. Um, the so I, my my hobby was writing stories and i was very systematic i workshopped 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 and uh so as a result my very first submission of my very first work was immediately 
accepted uh, for three times the normal rate. That's not your usual uh, collecting um, uh, rejection slip story. Yeah. So it's a little hard. I have advice articles, which you guys will post, um, to help young authors. And I do it more than most people do. Um, but the one thing I don't give advice about is how to keep your your morale while accepting rejection. <laughs> because, <laughs> sorry, I, 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 I don't have any history there. I did notice, though, we, we just republished that first novel, Sundiver, and uh, the, my very first character ever to be published was half African and half um, Native American mestizo. This was 1976, so wow. if, if nobody else is going to give me one of these, I'm going to. So, uh, and, and what I tell young authors, and it's in my advice there is that no matter what genre you want to work in, make your first work a murder mystery. Oh, wow. Oh, it's absolutely essential because you, you don't learn plotting in any other genre. In a murder mystery, you have to plot the yeah. arc of revelations well, because there's no way you can hide your failure. Um, the, you're in a sadomasochistic relationship, and the reader has to hate himself or herself for just barely missing the revelation of who done it. If you, if they can, if they do know in advance, they're disappointed. If they, if they see what 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 it is who done it, and it doesn't make any sense, they'll hate your guts. <laughs> you have to time it right and in a romance novel you can always hide your plot failures with some more in a in, in a fantasy story in a fantasy story you can throw in one more unicorn or dragon in science fiction you can go Wee! uh but a murder mystery and sundiver was a science fiction murder mystery the the um the first victim gets dumped into the sun, which makes CSI really hard. Um, so, so I would think yeah. that would be hard CSI. Yeah. Uh, so I have, uh, we have come to the full circle, and I'm sorry I jabbered, 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 jabbered uh, so much, but you can see how many things I, I had to weave together in order to answer one simple question. Wow. <laughs> So we got one question done, click. But what we're gonna do real quick, cause we're almost at the 30 minute mark. We're gonna take a quick break and we'll be right back. And we're gonna talk about the postman right after this. Hey, thank you for listening to Drinking With Authors. We wanted to let you know that if you're an aspiring author out there and you'd like to be on our podcast, you can email us at drinkingwithauthors at gmail.com. Or if you guys have a question, comment, want to tell us some little tidbit of interesting news, you can always direct message us or comment on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We love that you're listening. We love that you're out there. And we look forward to hearing from you. David Brin, we want to talk about the postman a little bit. Can we talk about the postman a little bit? As you see, we have, well, no, they can't see, can they? No, they can't see. You just (laughs) gesture to the, okay. No, you are really pretty when you drink. Oh, it's, I don't drink unless I'm on the podcast. So I'm a hot mess all the time. (laughs) She is. It's part of the joy. Unlike me, I have Irish descent. I'm like, what is this? We need some more shots. Let's go. (laughs) So let's talk about the postman. You wrote the postman. Right. Um, what did you? I'm the front for a guy who's very shy. I'd like to stop. Stop. I, I wrote the postman. Oh, I was like, what? <laughs> Quick, write down this revelation. Okay. So the postman, um, and it gets opted for a movie. How did that? How did that go down? Well, first off, the postman is a reflection of my upbringing, afraid of nuclear war, afraid of, that we're going to lose everything that, that has made life for the first time in all the history of our species at least somewhat gracious at, with, with, uh, with self-improvement and uh, always on our agenda. So uh, I was tired of 
the mad, what's called the Mad Max scenario, the lone hero or with a sidekick, uh, you know, is, is saving the day uh, through leaping and hopping. And the interesting thing is the first Mad, three Mad Max movies, not the horrible recent one, but the first three Mad Max movies weren't Mad Max movies because, in fact, they, they were thoughtful about civilization and Max would give his life to, to, to help bring it back. Um, but, you know, it occurred to me that, you know, that we live in a civilization that is simultaneously competitive and collaborative, and it has to be both, because you have to collaborate over rules to prevent the cheating that ruins competition. Um, I wanted to tell a story of a hero who yeah, does some heroic things, but the principal thing that he's able to do, much to his own surprise, is to remind the survivors that they had once been mighty beings called citizens. And that if they could gather their force of will and their cooperativeness and competitiveness, inspired by the right notions that they, people, thousands of them, tens of thousands, might actually be able to pull something out of the fire. And in my opinion, that, that is a vast, more important and long-lasting way to get out of uh, calamity. And I have to tell you that my feelings about the Kevin Costner movie are very mixed, but one thing is paramount. And that is that that aspect, which is the heart of my story, he utterly nailed. Uh, he and the screenwriter, Brian Helgeland, <coughs> the heart message that a flawed and even sometimes cowardly fellow could find a way to remind everybody else what they once had been. Utterly there. And especially given that the first three screenplays um, commissioned by Warner Brothers were just evil, just totally reversed every moral point I was trying to make. You know, uh, for all of the flaws in Costner's treatment, both of the flick and of me, you know, I. I felt like a guy who had been beaten up with, with broken bottles by a gang in, the, in a dark alley, and a guy comes along and beats them up, sends them packing, stitches my worst wounds, stands me up, hands me a beer, and then says, would you mind if I berate you about the lower legs with a rattan stick? Oh. oh. Uh, <laughs> knock yourself out, man. <laughs> <laughs> So guest, ow. So ow. It's a brutal thing to have to endure as an author trying to well, watch your your baby essentially cross into that other realm of media. Well, he was he was he was actually he was not very nice to me at all. Um, uh, I was I was barely barely given the minimal courtesies. I, I never even had a beer with him. You'd think that he'd take me out to dinner once. <laughs> but that doesn't matter as much. Did they approach you for this? So Yes, instantly, as soon as the book was out, my, my agent then, he's no longer my agent, said, this is your one chance, sign right now. And for the next, oh, 10 years, every three months, someone would call me up saying, let's work together, da 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 da, -da, -da. Richard Dreyfus, for example. Would have been a great little film. Uh, no, no, this is was very, very frustrating. Um, and and mind you, I do believe that though he held on to the heart, uh, he scooped out and threw away most of the brains. There are many parts of the book that he didn't include that I would not include in a movie. Talking computers and, and augmented muscles and things like I would have made exactly the same decision. I think it's tragic that he didn't get feedback about the last 20 minutes of the film. 
because I think it left everybody with a bad impression. Also, in probably the worst example of movie timing in the history of cinema, he brought, uh, he said, we, our timing is perfect. We're bringing out this Christmas movie and all the only competition we have is Cameron's silly remake about a sinking boat. So Titanic? He brought it on the same weekend as Titanic. That was super dumb. Uh, that uh, was super. I forgot that it came out at that time. time. Yeah. Mainly because I didn't go see it in the theater. You know, I have to say, like, Kevin Costner, like, I love Dancing with Wolves. It's, and I thought it was brilliant. But after that, these movies he started making, I was like, why do people keep giving this man money? Like, <laughs> this is ridiculous. They're so long. And I... You know, Waterworld I, is one of my worst. I hate Waterworld. I think Waterworld was one of the worst movies ever made. And, and fr- quite frankly, evil as well. Um, but it has the opposite um, sensibility about civilization to the postman. Yeah. I, I have to tell you that there's something else about that movie, and that is that I think that Kevin Costner is probably the, one of the most brilliant cinematographers in the history of cinema. Um, I, I think that his movies are absolutely drop-dead gorgeous. I think this film is uh, musically and visually one of the dozen most beautiful ever shot. So what do we have here? We have gorgeous, <laughs> big-hearted, and dumb. But you see, that's what my wife married. <laughs> gorgeous, big-hearted, and dumb. I love it. And, 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 and so, you know... <laughs> May you suffer the way I suffered and have, have a movie that you get to ask, you get asked to bitch about and you get to be very forgiving and understanding. I mean, well, it's really not the worst thing ever to happen to anybody because it's morally okay. Yeah. It's, it's true. We talked to Jonathan Mayberry about this and, and also, his you know, series B Wars. Yeah, yeah. series B Wars and talking about um, also like Stephen King, because a lot of Stephen King's remakes I look at and I go, oh, God, I'd be so mad as the author. I would just be mad. But he just goes here, go do your thing. Like he doesn't seem to. And Jonathan Mayberry was like, I, I just let him do it. I, you know, I would have done stuff differently, but I just let him do it. And I it's kind of interesting because. They, they obviously sent you some of the scripts and stuff like that. Did part of you ever just go, you know what? You guys just go do whatever. I'm going to sit over here and pretend like none of that is happening. No, I, can't, I can't do that. I, I, I care. I care about story. Um, one of, you know, various people are the best at various things. For instance, Frederick Pohl was probably the greatest idea science fiction author. Uh, Pohl Anderson was the greatest storyteller I ever knew which is why all of his Hugos and Nebulas were uh, in the novella category, because the novella is the natural arc of something you, uh, the storyteller would tell by the campfire in the old days of the caves and the tribes. Uh, and so his great novels were strung together novellas, and, and that was the same style of my most mythic um, story, which is The Postman. Um, uh, uh, Paul had one movie, it was a German uh, make of one of the blatantly most obviously movieable things that this great storyteller ever told, and that's called The High Crusade. Uh, basically, an alien spaceship lands in Britain um, as, as the local baron is getting his troop ready to go join Richard the Lionheart in the Crusades. And the big ramp comes down, and the aliens start shooting, and they... <laughs> And the knights just charge up the ramp into the ship, kill all but one of the aliens, and they have a starship. <laughs> and they might. It's a wonderful, wonderful concept. Um, sounds like something out of Monty Python, honestly. That's what it sounds like to me. <laughs> the point that the Germans tried to make it funny and they failed utterly. Now, comedy is hard. I have a new comedy novel. Oh. That none of my regular publishers wanted to publish because they're terrified of comedy. And I'm hoping that um, Erica and Valerie will uh, post a link so people can sample the first three chapters 
and if they think it's har har funny, they can buy the rest cheap. Um, I we also just read got the rights back to a dozen of my books under the 1978 Copyright Act. Uh, Bantam uh, Random House had never heard, their lawyers had never even heard of this. Oh, wow. No other authors who had multiple books under the same contract for 35 years. That Copyright Act was written in response to Schuster and Siegel being screwed on Superman. Oh, and so it says after 35 years, no matter what your original contract says, if you're still under that original contract, you can get your rights back. So oh. I got back all the uplift books, and they're all going to be oh, reissued by Open Road. Now, now, now uh, the uplift series won several Kugos and Nebulas. Oh yes, yes, yeah, and um, dolphins in space. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> hey, I like to echo the dolphin. Okay, I'm. Big. Oh, you know, I wrote the. You know, yes. I. That's a beautiful game. I have had so much bad luck. Things that should have been great big openings for the whole thing. It's the best game that was ever on the Dreamcast. But yeah. Yeah. now it's been ported over to various various things. But I wrote the um, outer thing, and people are giving me credit for Death Stranding, but giving me no money. Half of the half of the reviews of Death Stranding mentioned the Postman. Oh wow! It's oh. half of all reviews mentioning the Postman. You know that <laughs> I really should at least have gotten a dinner. Yeah, uh, I think yeah. more people need to take you to dinner and give you a beer. I feel like there's a dinner <laughs> beer disparity <laughs> happening. Obviously, I'm I'm so bitter and and obviously so impoverished. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, and absolutely no sense of self-perspective whatsoever. No, no, no. Um, so, you know, we've been uh, bouncing. Oh, yes. Uh, so Open Road is going to reissue the Uplift books, except Sundiver, which we just reissued ourselves. I went through it and did a, um, a re-edit for the first time in 40 years. Um, I ju we just finished a re-edit of The Postman and The Practice Effect. And as soon as Patrick Farley, who I a totally underrated web comic artist, who I'm going to link to, okay. um, the uh, as soon as he gives us the covers, those two will also be on my website uh, in somewhat re-edited um, edited form. Um, How was that? How was it like revisiting? So we talk about that a lot on the the, yeah. the podcast that some people have a hard time. Um, Just releasing saying. their book, like releasing their book yeah. and, um, you know, going through, they keep editing and editing. They can't almost stop themselves. And then we've talked to a lot of people, other people that talk about um, never wanting to touch the book again. Like they're done. They don't right. want to it again. Spiders are all very different. I'm a bit of a perfectionist, but it's also because of the rhythm and cycle. Um, Robert Heinlein, for example, was extremely good at openings. He would start novels extremely well. They would reach a peak and a climax, a dramatic climax, somewhere around the middle of the book, and then peter out into talk, 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 and yawning <laughs> through the entire last half of the book, which ironically, his best book, uh, Beyond This Horizon, which is his prescriptive utopia, had that same pattern, except the dramatic first part was absolute garbage and the talk talk part in the second half was wonderful <laughs> we should have collaborated because for me what i never know i never know what what i'm doing in a story i flounder around the first scenes and chapters and then flounder and then rewrite and circulate for to a large coterie of pre-readers and get feedback and then rewrite the first fifth, build momentum, write the second fifth, and circulate it again, get more feedback. Rewrite the first two fifths, write the third fifth. And now I think I'm starting to understand what this story is about. The last quarter of the book is no problem whatsoever. I blaze through those, I know how to end things. I, if you hang with my, any of my novels till the end, you, they'll end well. Um, 
And that's why they get the least rewrite. Whereas the first fifth has been rewritten five times. But you see, that's not the same kind of perfectionism that you were talking about. I'm willing to let go. I'm willing to hand it over. It's just, you know, part of the process to getting to the end, to understanding this thing, is rewriting the beginning many times. And that's where I'm weakest. So it's a pattern that works for me, except for one problem. Okay. Getting started. Wow. Okay. I have the first two chapters of my grand uplift finale. Uh and I'm just, I'm not rolling along on it. So I, it's because I keep getting distracted lately by politics, by political blogs. You'll link to, um, uh, let's see here, my political book that uh, I've put out called Polemical Judo oh, okay. has advice for our side in this union, the union side in this civil war and it's gained no traction whatsoever. And if one out of a hundred of these ideas were put into play, it would be Gettysburg. Okay. Uh, this is my ancient ones. The, this is okay. my uh, comedy with a lovely jocular Patrick Farley cover. Um, so uh, where, where, where I, I forget where I was. It's senility. You were talking so. about starting books. I love this. I love it. This. this is totally <laughs> drinking with authors. Yeah. And we're going left. And where are we now? We don't know. We left our map behind. So when you obviously are not a plotter then, because if you're not, if you don't know where the story's going, how do you get inspired? Like what makes you oh, go? Like, you know, what well, people, people will say it's the character that is entrancing. People will say it's the it's the science fiction scenario. Um, people will say it's it's uh, it's the underlying social problems. I've done them all. I I've worked from outline. For instance, when when I finished Isaac Asimov's uh, Foundation and Robots universe in Foundation's Triumph, I had a responsibility. I reread even obscure books like Pebble in the Sky and The Currents of Space. And I had a Paul Anderson absolute, absolute uh, fetish with um, the story, Isaac's story. And people have said, Janet Asimov said that I tied together his loose ends very well. And for that, I had to work from an outline. Uh, and for Heart of the Comet, my collaboration with Gregory Benford, uh, we worked from an outline. Generally, I don't, because as I said, I need to get through this cycle in order to really know what's going on in the so story. Where did you get the idea? So the idea hit you for like the postman. Where did you go? You know what? I'm going to write a book about this. In that particular case, I had read a post-apocalyptic story in analog that day, and I thought, what would I do if this with this character next? Then I had a little fantasy, and I thought, dang. Um, in some cases, um, like Earth and existence, it's an attempt to extrapolate a world of 30 years from now, which is the hardest stretch of time to extrapolate. And some of my fans keep a wiki tracking successful predictions from Earth. But along with many others of my colleagues, I have to say, you know, uh, prediction is not our main concern. I happen to have an extremely good score. But uh, as I said, the self-preventing prophecy is vastly more important. So giving warnings that actually effectively help to cancel out the thing you're warning about, that's much more powerful. Um, so it's, it's different with each book. Um, with my, probably my f most fun novels, The Practice Effect and Kiln People, K-I-L-N, they're, they're made of clay. Yeah. <laughs> um, those, those were, until the ancient ones, until I published this comedy, these, these were my most fun books, people say. And those were classic 
here's a gimmick. Look at how much fun can I have with this gimmick. And in the practice effect, it's a fairly straightforward, simple adventure story, gimmick, all that sort of thing. I'm pleased to say that in doing these rewrites 30, 35 years later, the amount of political correctness surgery that I had to do was extremely small. Oh, in one case that the character said, is talking about a colleague he deeply respects and arguing with her as an equal, but he mentally notes that she fills out a bikini well. <laughs> gone. Gone. Gone, 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 gone. It was 1976, and, and I expect to be forgiven. Well, I don't even think that's think bad, that's now. bad now. I mean, no, 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 no. But, but, well, but, but, but mostly, mostly, almost nothing. The, the principal character in existence um, is is bisexual, you know, and all of that. But uh, um, in in killing people, it was just one idea. What if you could make cheap, one day copies of yourself? that had all your memories, and especially you could download the memories at the end of the day. Well, then you could be five different yous and then reconverge at the end of the day. And then the one added thing, and that is I almost always give the new thing to everybody because too many sci-fi plots are saying, here's the new thing and the rich are monopolizing it or the, the, the evil one is monopolizing it or all that sort of thing. I try to give it to everybody because that's what we've done. That's and we're so interesting. It's very true. Let's talk, let's talk a moment because we have a few more minutes of this podcast. Um, let's talk about your fans. So one thing um, we've become acutely aware of. So I write horror under one name and I write uh, erotica under another name and Val writes uh, like fantasy the paranormal mythology, and then paranormal, and then erotica under another name as well. But fans, yeah. <laughs> sci-fi fans um, are, are a different beast than our fans. Even like my fans for the horror genre, because none of my stories have happy endings, but um, science fiction fans tend to like really kind of call you on your stuff. Like they, you know, we had a, one of our authors is writing a, a time thing between two mm -hmm. dimensions. And she's like, I'm trying to figure out the math. I'm like, don't figure out the math, be vague. Cause you'll be sitting on a panel and some nerd in the audience will stand up and call you out on the math. It's wrong with your time differential. Just say there's a variable that swings it right and left. <laughs> yes. And so you, 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 you tell her that I said, don't listen to you. Okay. Okay. I will. I will today, actually. I'm like, listen, we interviewed David Brin and he told me to stop it. You go ahead and do your dear. What do you think fan wise though? Cause you're obviously a fan of, of no, it's not science fiction. It's speculative history. history. I'm not going to call it science fiction, but you're a fan of speculative history. What do you think of the fans of speculative history? I think it's wonderful. It's probably the best tribe in all the history of the world to be a member of. It's the first tribe in all of the history that has said to its, its children, um, think different. You know, a, a child go, in, our, in our tribe goes up to the parent and says, I'm not going to recite the same catechism as you. I'm going to come up with new stuff. And the re parent's response is, ooh. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, that's a, that's a kind of a different religious um, obsession. Uh, and I think it's wonderful. Um, I mentioned my pre-readers. I circulate everything. I circulate everything very, very broadly. Because the greatest tool for success that any person can nurture is to look upon criticism as um, something as food. Um, for one thing, if you take it that way, then your biggest critics, who are your enemies, who will leap to criticize you, suddenly become your allies. Um, they are telling you all, all this stuff that's wrong with you, and you're going, huh, all right, well, that's bullshit. Um, you're, a, you're, a, you're an idiot. Wait a minute. These two items. Ooh, God, I hadn't thought of that. I'm going to fix those, and that'll help me to defeat you. Thanks. <laughs> 
That's a really great way of looking, looking at it. At it. Um, yes. the, the point is that the, I've just explained human history, the horrible horror of human history, because the one thing that could have enabled ruling castes to rule better is to listen to those who say, um, your emperorness, I hear they have snow in Russia. Um, maybe we shouldn't invade. Uh, to if the one thing that would enable you to rule well is the one thing that these ruling castes obsessively repressed. And we're seeing that in the war on nerds, the war on journalism, the war on science, the war on all the fact professions today. And it's resulting in very bad governance. Well, so to get back to the point, I circulate everything. I get feedback. Uh, and sometimes, uh, sometimes it is, you're an idiot. But very often, if you failed, if three or more, certainly possibly two or more of your pre-readers offer you the same, even if they misunderstood what you wrote, then that's your fault. We had that conversation not too long ago where it's, it's the editor is your first line of discovering that aspect sometimes. Like that's why it's so important to have an editor involved because what you think you laid on the page and what is read and absorbed from the page can sometimes flip on you or flip on the reader. And, and well, if you have an editor and the editor didn't understand where you were going with it, you got to take that step back and re rewrite. Or you have editors take community college um, uh, creative writing classes, if we ever get back to normal. I took six or seven while I was writing, uh, learning to write. And in every case, I could have taught the class better than the teacher. But what it did is it gave me a weekly deadline, 10 pages per week, and um, civilians to read what I wrote. And, and if I could get them to understand what I was writing, then I could get a science fiction reader to understand what I was writing. So at the end of 10 weeks, you have 100 pages and you have a deadline. Um, so the, the, the thing is that, that, that their tricks, um, Valerie and Erica will, um, oh, I, I'm sorry. That's the order I gave them last time. Erica and Valerie <laughs> <laughs> screaming from the gallery. Oh, if you hate that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm no, sorry. no, it's no, fine. My uncle uh, used to call me ballerina, ballerina, and I used to cry about it. So, cause I was a tomboy growing what? up. Well, but you don't mind, you don't mind uh, Maxwell. No, no, no. And of course, you know, my husband appreciates my love for fishing. So, well, you can, um, uh, link to my, um, article of advice for new writers. Absolutely. Yeah. We're always happy to pass on advice columns and stuff like that because we th and that's part of the, the, the love for this podcast is we get to sit down with, with folks who have been out there for a while, who have had the movie, had something, and we get to talk about where'd you start, what inspired you, go back to what helped you. And it sounds like before you even sent in that first submission, you went above and beyond with workshops, going to creative writing courses and, and building that critique partnership and getting going through your paces and rejections through that stage. Growing a, growing a thick skin um, because the only way you're going to be able to deal with criticism is if you get a thick enough skin that it's not hurting that much. Now, uh, it can hurt even when you got as thick a skin as this. And, and I can sometimes be rude. I have one of the, I have a popular um, um, blog called Contrary Bryn, which we'll link to. And there are some times when people come in and, you know, are nasty and I can, I can lose my temper. But if you develop a thick enough skin to think of criticism as the food you need in order to get better, then that is the top advice of all. 
Mine was awesome. Well, I think we're going to use that to end the podcast. That's what I think. Yes, that's a good. That's a good stopping point. point. Okay, so um, what is the easiest way to reach you? What is like? Where would you like us? I know we're going to do a lot of links, but where would you say you want fans to find you? Well, I have a uh, I have a website, davidbrin.com, and I have a blog, Contrary Bryn. And the comments section under that blog is one of the oldest and best um, bunch of erudite arguing guys. Uh, <laughs> and I say that guys in the most generic sense, several are trans people and all of that. So, um, um, but in any event, uh, I expect your email, I'll fill in the blanks, and you guys combine brains and heart and such charisma, such charisma. Thank you. Thank you so much. It has been amazing having you on the podcast. Mm -hmm. So it has been David Brin. I'm Erica Lance. And I'm Valerie Willis. And we'll see you next time.